You are listening to Equip Campus Ministries. Matthew, take verse 13 tonight. We are on to lead us not into temptation. Let's read it again. It should be on the screen here in a moment. Uh, read aloud with me the Lord's Prayer. Jesus taught us to pray. Our Father, Father who, who art in heaven, heaven hallowed, hallowed be your name. name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Here's the Lord's Prayer. Let me pray for us one more time before we dive in. <clears throat> Father, thank you for um, preserving that for us. Thank you for the... Lord, even if we don't know and feel in the moment, the incredible gift that your word is to us and the incredible gift that this prayer is to us. And so, again, Lord, just ask that you would help us to understand, you would give us eyes to see, and you would uh, bring about transformation, Father, in our lives as a result of learning how to pray as your son taught us. So, Lord, help us now, we pray. That's in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> so last week was... Uh, <clears throat> Forgive us our debts, forgive us our sins. We talked a fair bit. I talked, I guess, mostly. You didn't talk. You didn't have time anyway. Uh, talked about what that means, um, how we're supposed to pray daily, every single day, um, ask for our daily bread, and ask for forgiveness of sin, how significant, essential forgiveness is. And then he leads right into after that, of course, and lead us not into temptation. I think I said last week that there was only one and in the prayer. I don't know why I said that. Or at least depending on the version, there's two. I don't know if there was on that one. So he immediately says this. A.W. Pink says, in response to this, he's a, a uh, theologian, author, I think he's dead. Is that on the screen? Is there a uh, quote by A.W. Pink on there? There's not. There's not. He says that, quote, We cannot rightly desire God to forgive us, as we prayed last week, and we prayed right before this. We cannot rightly desire God to forgive us, our sins, unless we sincerely long for grace to abstain from like in the future. It's just this poignant little qualification. What does it mean? What does it mean to genuinely ask for forgiveness? He says, you can't actually, actually genuinely ask for forgiveness unless you sincerely long for the grace of God to stop it, <laughs> to abstain from the same kind of sin in the future. And we talked about that a little bit last week, the, the danger of thinking that because you were saved at some point, you signed a card that you're good to go, get out of jail free card. It doesn't work that way. If you're actually asking for forgiveness of something, it means you take the step and you deeply desire not to go forward. <clears throat> so that's where he goes. Lead us not into temptation. That's, in some sense, a vague or a short summary of, of what it's saying. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. I decided we're going to do next week um, because I could fit it in. <clears throat> but it's an important aspect, obviously. I've been uncertain about this prayer all my life. <clears throat> I, don't, I don't know if anybody else here has been. It's always seemed strange to me, really weird, and honestly... Uh, I don't think I've understood this prayer until like two weeks ago, <laughs> or maybe this week, at least fully, uh, or more, to a level that I'm, I'm thinking like, oh, I missed this. Uh, it's always been weird to ask God, don't lead me into temptation. Just curious, anyone else struggled to understand what in the world are we praying here? Show of hands. I would assume most everyone. I won't ask who's been absolutely confident around it, but so that's always been, that's always, uh, I've never really understood this prayer, and it's been weird. Uh, does God normally lead us into temptation? Since we're supposed to ask him not to? Right? Forgive us our sins and lead us not into temptation. 
fact, I had a professor one time on campus, I just remembered, challenged me this uh, one time when I was in college, a sophomore. He said, are you, were you supposed to ask him not to lead you to temptation? I mean, this God of yours does lead you to temptation. I had no clue what to say, and I still never, never figured out an answer until, I think, this week, quite honestly. Does God tempt us, is another way to ask it. Lead us not into temptation. Does God tempt us? If you're asking him not to do it, is it something he's going to do unless you pray? <clears throat> the first thing to say to this, as you might expect, of course, is a very easy and definitive no. God does not tempt anyone. He doesn't tempt his people to sin. James 1.13 is really, really clear about this. That should be on the screen. Let no one say, James says, when he is tempted, quote, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. So James is really clear. Some, some, some things in the scriptures are a little gray. Some things are uncertain. That's not. Right? And one of them, God doesn't do that. So there it is in black and white. God tempts no one. So when you are tempted to sin, when we are tempted to sin, the natural fallen human response is to shift the blame. This is what we do. We are very, we're a chip off the old block in this way, like our first father, Adam. Adam's response was, but God... I always like to put a little wine in, but but God, it was the woman you gave me that handed me the fruit and I ate. He immediately says the reason he ate, it was that woman that you gave me uh, that handed me the fruit and I ate. It doesn't explicitly say, she's the reason I sinned, but it's, you read just a tiny bit between the lines. That was Adam's response, it's to shift the blame. You gave me that woman, she's the one who handed me the fruit. It's her fault, it's your fault. And so our issue and our sins are always someone else's fault with us as human beings. A lot of the time. You, you do this a lot more than you realize. I do this a lot more than you actually realize it's shift blame onto someone or something else. And who's easier to blame than God, who's always there? He's omnipotent, he's omniscient, right? Who's easier to blame than the Lord? Well, James says, nope, you should never say that. That would be a treacherous, cowardly, false thing to declare about the Lord. God never tempts anyone to sin. Okay. Got it. James is really clear about this. James is Jesus' brother, remember, half-brother. The whole book of James, if you were here last year, is sort of an extrapolation of the whole Sermon on the Mount, a whole bunch of connections with James. So he's, James is tracking with Jesus. He understands his mind, and he's you know, inspired by the Holy Spirit, and he says God doesn't do that. God doesn't tempt us. So what then is the deal with asking him not to lead us into temptation? What is the deal with that? Why would we ask him not to do something that he's certainly never, ever going to do? What in the world does that possibly mean? I think there's two main responses to this, and we're going to spend our time on it. One uh, is that the word temptation itself can have two meanings that we're going to talk about. The word temptation that's translated in the text has two meanings, at least, depending on the context. And the second response is to explore the relationship between what we understand as temptation and in, in legitimate sinful sense and what we call trial. And so just a heads up very, very briefly, uh, you should get used to doing this. I was talking to Darren right before we started about Bible apps, Logos software. No one in this room probably knows Greek. It's an important thing, if, even if you don't know Greek, to look at how words are used. And sometimes we have to really do some reading and say, what in the world? Why do they translate it? Do not lead us into temptation. It might take you some work to do that. And I'm gonna, just going to tell you, there's a lot of fruit on the, on the other end of that that you might not understand until you get there. There's fruit of digging deep into God's word and really struggling, maybe for years, or at the very least, hours and weeks of 
what does this mean? And that's kind of something that I think is necessary here. And that's okay. Some of the things Paul writes are hard to understand, Peter says. Um, some things are difficult. Some things are uncertain on the surface, at least. So, the first thing. <clears throat> the word temptation, first meaning. The word temptation can have a couple meanings. One, it can mean to entice, to sin, to entice, to evil, or to sin. That's one option that it can mean, and it's used that way plenty of times in the scriptures. Another option that it can mean is to put to the test, to try the strength of. I know it sounds weird to think of the word temptation being used that way, but it is so. To put to the test. So it's clear from James 1, in common biblical sense, that God does not entice us to do evil. That's not what he's saying. Lord, do not lead us into enticing us to sin. Lord, do not entice us to sin. That's clearly not what Jesus is telling you to pray because... Uh, it's just impossible. God wouldn't do that. He hates evil, so clearly in the context, he's asking us to do something else. He's not instructing us to ask God not to do something he'll never do in the first place. And so let's just take that option off the table. That's a big deal, though. That's been confusing for me. He's not saying, don't lead us into temptation where you otherwise might have, which obviously leaves us with, do not lead us into testing or trial. Don't lead us into testing or trial. I think this is what uh, Jesus is telling us to ask. This is what we're asking God. Please do not lead us to a time of testing and trial. Keep us from that. A time of testing, a time of great trial. Let's say, you can insert the word perhaps severe or significant. You, know, you could argue that any last little thing you do is always a test of your, of your faith, but... Let's say something like significant. Don't lead us into a time of testing or trial. The NRSV, the New Revised Standard Version, that's on the screen too, literally translated this way. They say, and do not bring us to the time of trial. Probably no one uses the NRSV. That's how they translate it. Do not bring us to a time of trial. That's what I think he's saying we should pray for. I will encourage you, considering at least for me how much I struggled dealing with this and grappling with this, I would encourage you to really spend some time thinking and making sure is this is true. It's not actually terribly difficult to do something online. I can give you a couple resources. But I think that's what Jesus is saying. This is how you should pray. Lord, do not lead us, do not bring us to a time of trial. Now it's important as we get to the second response, that's the first one. Let's get straight what Jesus is talking about. The first thing is, I think he's saying, the word means trial. The word means testing. He's not saying keep us from temptation. Don't lead us into temptation. Because God's not going to do that. It's a sinful enticing. He's saying, keep us from trial. The second one, then, is understanding, however, the relationship that exists between sinful temptation, on the one hand, and trials. These kind of trials that we're asking God not to lead us into. Is understanding this relationship, because there is one. There is a relationship between trials and temptation, and it's a bit tricky. Um, Perhaps, again, if you remember anything from last year, we went to James. Uh, this is pretty significant in James. He deals with this, and it's this back-and-forth thing that's slightly confusing. One thing to say about the relationship is that in every trial and testing, in every trial, in every test that you may be put through, we'll get there in a minute, there is an opportunity for temptation. In every trial. You could say there is an increased occasion for sin in a trial, in a testing. 
in the midst of a trial, you may choose to trust God and pass the test, so to speak, proving the genuineness of your faith, as Peter says. You may choose to be faithful by the grace of God, but you choose to be faithful in this middle of this trial, in this middle of this test. Or you can choose the way of self and sin and fail. Everyone, if you're a Christian, you've probably experienced both ends of those spectrums. You'll think of times when you passed by the grace of God, where you remain faithful, many times you certainly fail. <clears throat> and so, God does indeed grant us and give us tests. He leads us into trials. For example, Jesus in the wilderness, if you recall. Anyone remembers the story of Jesus being tempted in the wilderness? Uh, We'd all agree that Satan, he's out in the wilderness for 40 days, right? Basically hasn't eaten or uh, drank anything. And Satan comes and, and tempts him to sin. Uh, here's a bunch of power. I can give you all the power. Here's food. He's starving to death. Here's food. Just say the word, and I'll, you, I'll turn this bread. You can turn, you can turn that, that rock into bread, right? All these temptations. What's happening is Satan is tempting him to sin. That's what's happening. It's a temptation. And we would agree, right, that that's evil. Satan trying to get Jesus to sin is an evil thing. There's no question. Anytime you try to get someone to sin, it's an evil thing. So, who is responsible for putting that occasion of temptation, Jesus out in the wilderness, being tempted by Satan, to sin? Who is responsible for that on uh, Jesus' ministry calendar? He's an itinerant preacher. He's walking around for three years with no real home, who put that on the calendar? Who put that on his to-do list? Anybody? The Holy Spirit did. That's what Matthew 4, 1 says. The Holy Spirit did this, so to speak. Matthew 4, 1 says, quote, Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. So a question. Who led Jesus Christ into the wilderness? Answer, the Spirit led Jesus Christ into the wilderness. Question, for what purpose did the Spirit lead him there? What was the motivation? The purpose was, quote, to be tempted by the devil. That's what Matthew said. That's something. But I remember the first time I saw that, read that, recognized it, and thought for the first time about it. Like, What? The Spirit, the Holy Spirit, led Jesus into the wilderness for the purpose of Satan tempting him to sin. What is going on? There are three parties involved in Jesus' temptation. Jesus, Satan, and the Holy Spirit. Three parties in that temptation. Involved in the situation. So what's the deal with that? James says that God tempts no one. What is the deal going on here? And here's the deal. <clears throat> Although there is a relationship between trials and temptations, between testing and temptation to sin, they aren't the same thing. A trial, a testing, that God has and in the future inevitably will bring you through, even like let's pray to avoid them, we'll get there in a second. Even though uh, God grants those and he does, there is a difference between the trial and the actual temptation to sin. They're not the same thing. Notice who did the actual tempting. Satan, in Matthew 4, in the wilderness. God didn't do the temptation to sin. 
Satan was actually the one who was tempting him. <clears throat> and so the very succinct way to state the difference here, the difference between God's role in our temptations, in our testing temptations, and Satan's role in them, is the purpose pursued by both parties. This makes all the difference in the world. The difference in our testing temptations on God's part and Satan's role is the purpose pursued. God's purpose is for holiness. In your trials that are coming up, in your testing, that might be tomorrow morning, you might get that phone call, you might lose that leg, you might have a huge faith crisis of massive proportions, whatever it happens to be, that might be coming up, and God's purpose for you in that, always, if you're a Christian, is holiness. Satan's purpose, in the midst of a test, in the midst of a trial, Satan's purpose is to tempt you to sin to hell. God's purpose is holiness, Satan's purpose is hell. God's designs are for us to exult in him, to glory in him, to love in him. Ask, ask Johnny Erickson Tata, who is a paraplegic and has been doing Christian ministry for the last like three decades. She broke her neck while diving into a lake when she was 16 and has been paralyzed ever since. She says, God gave her this chair. She says, God did this to get glory for himself so that she would exalt in him. She does. Holy cow, if you're not familiar with her ministry, Johnny Erickson Tata. God's designs are for us to exalt in him. Satan's designs are for evil to abound. That's his purpose. That's his desire. Those are huge differences. Those goals are the defining difference in why we could hear and read Matthew 4, 1 and say, praise the Lord. The Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted, and God is not guilty for anything. So we see then that all the evil intentions of the devil to tempt Jesus to sin were in fact sinful and evil. They were. We know that the trial itself in Jesus' example was actually ultimately good because God led him there for that purpose. God brought him into the wilderness. God doesn't do anything that's not good. By definition, it's what he does is good. So, here's a question that arises for that for me. Are trials good for us? The prayer is, Lord, lead us not into temptation. We will lead us not into trial, keep us from the trial. Aren't trials good for us? I'm arguing that Jesus' trial, the testing there, was actually a good thing. The temptation by Satan's <clears throat> sin wasn't, but the trial itself was. Aren't they good things? If God intends and directs our testings as he does, why should we pray, lead us not to the time of trial? Why would we pray that? And this sentiment, the fact of it being good, is all over the scripture. I'll give you two very briefly. This idea, it's not just me, James 1, just going on from the other verse, James 1, 2 through 4. James says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. That's the reaction. Count it joy when you meet the trial. For you know, this is his reason you count it joy. Don't just try and be joyful and put on a smile. You might not have a smile, but count it joy because you know something. You know that the testing of your faith produces something. God's producing it in you. If you, if you believe and have faith, and it produces steadfastness. And it has all these things. Let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Why should you count it joy? Because you know something. If you believe this, if you know this, if you're a Christian, you're supposed to know, holy cow, in this terribly, terribly difficult trial, testament, fairly in, my God is bigger than it. He's producing in me 
He's working in me this great glory beyond all imagination. This present sufferings are not worth comparing the glory that will be revealed also. James says that the product of testing and trials is steadfastness that leads to perfection and completion, for crying out loud. These kind of words, they lead to perfection and leads to completion. Sounds like a good thing, these trials, obviously. 1 Peter 1, 67, very, very similar, says this. In this salvation you rejoice, Peter says to the believers, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that, what's the purpose of being grieved by these various trials? These are probably really significant trials, by the way, for these people, these Christians Peter's writing to. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, though it perishes, though, uh, that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Have in your mind an end time sort of thing. Absolute praise, absolute glory, absolute honor, Peter says, is you should rejoice, even though you've been grieved, because you know that this is what it's producing. Same exact sort of thing. Peter teaches that various trials result in praise and glory, because as gold is refined in a fire, hot fire, our sinful impurities are burned out through the trials of afflictions. Just like that. That's his analogy. It's a, what's it called when you, what's that thing called? The purifies gold. Somebody help me. Kilns? No. Smelting? Smelting? Whatever it is. I didn't think of what it was. But that thing, that's the analogy you're using. Like what? A crucible. Crucible? Crucible. Crucible. Is that really what it is? Whatever. It doesn't matter. Well, that's what they put the most metal in. All right. Crucible. There you go. Whatever. That's the analogy you're supposed to use. That's what you're supposed to think of. The gold gets purified, the silver gets purified by burning out the impurities, therefore also your trial, as difficult as it is, is meant to produce all these wonderful things. And it does. That's what Peter teaches. So if you want pure gold, it must go through the trial of fire. You might say. So, why is Jesus teaching us to pray, lead us not into the time of trial? If trials do in fact purify us. Why is he teaching us to pray this? This is assuming, of course, this is true, obviously. Don't think he's saying don't lead us to temptation. He doesn't lead you to sinful temptation. Keep us from the temptation, the trial. Lord, do not lead us into that trial. Why is he teaching us that? It's such a purifying thing. I want to answer this, and this is sort of wrapping up in a way, not quite, I mean, we got a few minutes left, but uh, wrapping up by way of application. I want to answer that question. Why does Jesus teach us to pray? This is really important. So this is kind of a lot of theology. You need to learn theology. You need to think deeply about these things because it actually infects. infects uh, uh, yeah, infects. Let's use that word. All of your faith. It, it shapes how you think. It shapes how you pray. It will shape how you actually respond when trials come. It's going to shape it. If you're not prepared, uh, you may just crumble. You might give God the middle finger because you're just not prepared to think about how life works when someone dies and the thing doesn't work. You might not be ready for that. you got to prepare yourself. You have to think about these things. You're going to continue to love Jesus well. So I want to answer that question. Why does he teach us to pray this way? By answering a related question, which is, why does God allow trials? I want to answer it by answering a different question, which is very, very similar. Why does God allow trials? Why does he allow trials? I still these things categorized from uh, Let me give two reasons why he allows trials, why he sends trials, why he sends testing, why he puts you through the crucible 
to burn on a period. Why does he do that? And he says two things. Uh, one, he tries us in order to reveal to us our apathy, weakness, and our need of his grace. He does it in order to reveal to us our apathy, our weakness, and our need of his grace. And he says, when God leads us to ourselves, it is most it is a most painful and humiliating discovery that we make when God leads us to ourselves. Which he doesn't normally Yet, when he leads us to ourselves, it is needful if we are to pray from the heart, hold me up, and I shall be saved. So we might pray like this. As you're thinking through the Lord's Prayer, lead me not into the time of trial. You might pray like this. Father, grant us, grant me, a heart that further believes how weak and needy I am. Grant me that, genuinely, Lord. Grant me that heart that believes how weak and how needy I am. Don't let me be presumptuous and prideful. If you actually request these things, please keep me from presumption. Please keep me from pride. Give me a faith. Open my eyes. Give me a faith to believe what I say I believe, that I'm nothing without you. Lord, grant that to me. Please do that for me. If you don't pray like this very often, you're, you need to. Please do this in my soul. Give me faith to believe this and keep me from the obstinate pride that only your absence might painfully cure. Keep me, Lord, from that. You don't pray for pride, correct? You pray, keep me from this pride, for instance. Keep me from the sin that your absence might painfully cure if it remains. Or whatever other kind of trial you send your way. And he will. If in fact you persist. If in fact the sin remains. Just like it's there in number two. So that's a good prayer. Lord, grant me these things. Grant me them that I might not have to go through the terribly painful experience that does it for me. That you do it in me. If he does, Peter and James both teach that. Lord, I want holiness. That's what you want. You're praying for that. Two. Here's another way. Another question. A reason. He tests us in order to teach us the need of watchfulness and prayer. He tests us in order to teach us the need of prayer, the need of watchfulness of our lives. <clears throat> Think of this. Most of us are so stupid and unbelieving that we learn only in the hard school of experience. And even, and even its lessons have to be knocked into us. Little by little, we discover how dearly we have to pay for rashness, carelessness, and presumption. That's right. Most of us, he says, us, I laugh when I prefer that. Most of us are so stupid and unbelieving that we learn only through the, the school of experience. And even then, it has to be knocked into us. I think that's right most of the time. Much of it. So we might pray something like this. Father, lead me not into the trial that would knock into me true watchfulness. Instead, awaken me now. I want to be watchful. I want to keep a close watch on my life and doctrine. Give me that now. I want it now. I don't want it later when only after my obstinate pride, only after all my running away, only after my refusal to actually confess my sins to my brothers, to actually repent, 
I don't want to. I don't want to do that anymore. In which he might just cut the legs out from under you, and you finally confess. You finally turn. You finally experience the joy that's found in holiness. He'll do that. He'll do that if he has to do that to you. But Lord, you pray instead. I want that now. Give that to me right now. Help me stay awake. Stay awake. Help me stay awake. That that uh, that, that might not be my state of soul. Right? You want to pray like that? You want to stand before the Lord, be on your knees in your closet by yourself? Lord, keep me awake that I don't get to a place in which the trial is necessary to awaken me. I want now to be awake. I want to love you now. It's not just or even primarily that the trial itself will be very, very hard. Obviously, we don't want hard things. Jesus didn't want hard things. Not in the highest sense. Lord, is it possible? It's possible that this cup pass. Please let that happen. I don't want to do that. But not my will, but your be done. You might continue to pray. Instead of rashness, as Pink uh, uh, said, you know, we have to pay for our rashness and carelessness and presumption. Instead, you pray of rashness and carelessness. You don't care. You don't take a cord of your life. You don't work, right? Instead of rashness, instead of carelessness, Lord, please, Father, grant me carefulness and wisdom right now. Please grant that to me. Let me not get to a point that your grace would need to knock me hard to awaken me once more. Please, Lord, please lead me not into the time of trial. C.S. Lewis said, God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. He speaks to us in our whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts to us in our pains. And so too we can pray, continuing on in our closet. Father, grant me spiritual ears to hear your whispers. Legitimately, pray that. That I might grow in faith and trust and gratitude for the simplest of pleasures of life. He made all the pleasures. Everything good in life, God made that. Everything pleasurable, God made that. And if you're experiencing in a sinful way, what he made into experience was actually better than the sinful pleasure you're experiencing. Every way. Every single pleasure. Every single delight. Everything. All of his rules higher are for higher pleasure. And so pray, Father, uh, let me hear you. Grant me ears to hear your whispers that I might grow in faith and trust in the simplest pleasures and not be lulled into complacency of my comfortable life. Keep me from that. Don't let me just make the pleasures my God. Father, please, don't lead me into the time of trial to knock that out of me. <clears throat> so one question, are you preparing your faith for severe trials like this? Are you praying... Lord, keep me from that. Lord, grant me a heart for you. Do you have this mind? I hesitate sharing this one because it's not like, I have an illustration sort of the story. It's not like the worst experience I've ever had in my life and so dangerous because I don't want you to think somehow Luke has this, you know, my worst thing is just this thing that's like, oh, that's kind of hard, but not really, because I'm not sinful, right? But it was actually very, very hard. <laughs> It doesn't sound like it was hard. In, in tall, uh, my senior year of high school in Minnesota, Minnesota, I got accepted to the All-State Jazz Band. I had a huge head. I thought it was all that. Very much. I was from a small school. I really was probably the best 
uh, jazz player at my high school are probably true. Because it was a small <laughs> school, it's not saying much. But I thought it meant a lot. And so I had a lot more pride than I thought it was. I had a lot more pride than I thought it was. So I get accepted, I couldn't believe it. I thought it was awesome and probably just exploded for the next few weeks before before at walking around. I was probably the most annoying person at the school. I went to Tulsa Jazz Band that happened to be populated, this all State jazz band, by everyone who was 10 times better than I was. And they were way better than I was. I was not keeping up. I had no, I mean, they were doing things I had no clue. I was sitting in a sax plan, I was just like, holy cow. Now, at the moment, I didn't know that was what was going on. I hated the first half of the season. I would go, I would, this is embarrassing, I would cry in the practice room, I kid you not. I would, I would, Hating. I wanted to go home. It was literally the probably most intense experience of I know least. I hate that. I was miserable. I was super duper unhappy. I don't think I knew anybody either. I probably didn't help have any friends. All this stuff. But my experience of that at the moment was this is really, really hard. This sucks. I feel terrible. I am miserable. I am unhappy. And that was my experience. What was actually happening? <laughs> was God, the perfect surgeon, was doing some significant surgery on my problem. My problem actually wasn't that I was very unhappy and lonely. My problem was I had a ton of sin. I had a ton of sin that God was carrying away through a trial. It might sound like a minor trial. The experience of it was very heavy. And it sucked a lot. I was, I mean, holy cow. Not to, not to mention my lip was bleeding all the time because play nine hours a day on the saxophone and it kind of was difficult, right? So there's pain too, right? Little things. <laughs> but I was ready to go home, and I kid you not, oh, I felt like I was a, a seven-year-old boy wanting to call his mommy and go home, right? Until God broke me. He broke me halfway through the week. And what he did was tell me, in so many words, no words, but he revealed to me, you are proud. You are a prideful jerk. And you think of yourself far too highly than you ought to think. And what he did was just make me believe that. What happened? I believed in that moment I was a proud, prideful jerk who believed he was way better than he was and had way too high opinions. That belief actually settled into my heart. That's what happened. It wasn't just a thing that he said, and I heard his whisper or whatever. I actually just went, my eyes scales sort of came off, and I went, holy cow. And here's how this works in the gospel. This only works in the gospel. If you don't have good news after that, that's a sucky position, because you're just a powerful jerk. That's all you are at that point. You have no hope. But in the gospel, what happens is, but I love you. So what actually happened as a result, as a Christian, what happened was joy. What actually happened as a result is I had an absolute blast the rest of the week. It was a very, very enjoyable experience. I learned a ton I looked around and could acknowledge every single person in this band is better than I am. And I'm learning a ton. This is so fun. I mean, it was the, one of the most night and day experiences of my life. And that was God a good surgeon. Now, if you would have asked me a couple months before that, or whatever, however long before that, do you want to be proud? Would you prefer God to you be humil have humility and love him? I would say yes. I think I would say yes. I think I would have meant this. How much better would it have been to enjoy that whole week? How much better would it have been to learn? I would have learned so much more had I not been thinking and hating it every moment of it because of my pride, because of my sin. Gosh, it had been good. 
Don't leave me to the time of trial. He will if he needs to, and he does. So when we pray like that, Lord, do not leave me to the time of trial. Grant me not to have to go through that. I want you first. We ought not desire to be or get to a place in which a Heavenly Father's purifying and awakening trials are necessary. We don't want to get there, obviously. People say, oh, you sow your wild oats early, right, when you're young. You sow your wild oats. And then when you, you know, everybody heard that expression, sow your wild oats. A bunch of farmers in here, isn't there? <laughs> right? <clears throat> you sow your wild oats. You sin, you get it all out of your system early in life. And you go and you drink and booze and sleep around and party and all these things. And then later in life, just settle down. It doesn't work that way. You reap what you sow, actually. You sow wild oats your whole life. You eat wild oats. And you just run that. We don't want that. Instead, we might hear, this is one reason I say these things, we might hear God's words to the Church of Philadelphia in Romans, or Revelation 3.10. Revelation 3.10 says this, Because you have kept my word, he's talking to the church, Philadelphia, because you have kept my word about patient endurance, because you've done that, because you've been faithful, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming upon the whole world. As a result of their faithfulness, he's going to keep them from the trial. that's what we want. Keep me from the time of trial, Lord. Give me faith. But, of course, wise, very, very wise to recognize I've said this, indwelling sin. If you're a Christian, you love Jesus. You actually love him. You have affection for Jesus. You actually were repented of sin. You repent of sin daily. That's, that's you. You still recognize that there's stuff. We call it indwelling sin. It's made its residence. It's not all gone in some way. It's still there. And it seems to be the pattern that God does indeed send trials to his saints to purify us. He does. You might say, this is one final thing to qualify this, this request, Lord, lead us not into the time of trial, should be qualified. There might be a little asterisk in your mind that it isn't an absolute request, that God would never, ever, in any way test us. Lord, please never, ever, ever give me a test. You might qualify and say, that's not exactly what you're praying for. We ask to be spared as Jesus asked to be spared with the qualification of, quote, let thy will be done. Lord, keep me from this time. It's impossible for this cup to pass from me, but not my will. But, he says, qualifies it to the Lord in this prayer, not my will, but yours be done. That was what Jesus' heart was. You could qualify these things this way. This, this way. We ask, knowing our Father knows best, he knows whether a yes or a no to your prayers is best. He knows that. At the absolute least, when trials come, we know clear as crystal what our response is supposed to be as a Christian. We know that. There's an absolute certainty. We count it all joy. That's what we do. That's what we strive for. We don't count it all chipperness. Don't misunderstand that. We don't count it all make sure you smile all the time and pretend like you're always happy, per se. We count it all joy. And that might produce a lot of smiles through misery. That also might be the case. Tears and a smile seen people at funerals like that, believers at funerals like that, anyways, what happens. Our heart's disposition is to know in this trial, we know. James says you know something. And your heart's disposition is that you can know in this trial God is producing great things, depending on whether faithfulness is chosen. We ask him to keep us from the evil that is always presenting itself in the trial. We're going to talk about that next week. But deliver us from evil. We're going to talk about what it means to ask about deliver us from evil more next week. We know that if we sin, it is our responsibility, or as Paul says, 
in 1 Corinthians 10, 13 on the screen. Paul says, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. By his grace, he can save. But with the temptation, he will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. There is always a way of escape of the sin in every trial. So, conclusion. When Jesus says to pray, Father, lead us not into temptation, it means lead us not to the time of trial. Rather, keep us awake, vigilant, and faithful, that we might not need the rod of discipline or the fire of a trial to keep us and to purify us. But remind us that you are good and work all things, all things together for good, so that we can count it all joy when we meet various kinds of trials, knowing that God is using every trial. So God does indeed lead us into temptation as he led Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted. He leads us into, quote, temptation. God can and does lead us into temptation, but he never tempts us to sin. So let's pray that God would keep us from trials, that he would give us faith. Father, so we do pray. Um, I ask that you would uh, not lead us to the time of trial, that you would not lead us to temptation, but rather keep us from evil, Father. Rather that you would give us faith, that you would give us joy, that you would give us faithfulness to um, pursue holiness, to run hard after you. Uh, Lord, that you would break us of our pride, that you would grant us a heart that, that has genuine humility. Lord, uh, and give us that faith now. We desire to know you, to live for you. And Lord, I again just pray that you would um, Father, even now in this moment, that you would break uh, hard hearts, that you would grant a new heart, Lord, to those who don't know you, that you would give faith, that you would cause us to walk in your statutes and give us joy. So Father, thank you. I pray for your blessing on our time together in, in small group for a few minutes, that you would give us uh, uh, courage and a willingness to ask questions and to share our mind and uh, what we think, Father, and help us to help one another in this time, Father. And I ask that in Jesus' name. You are listening to Equip Campus Ministries, where all our event audio, panel discussions, and sermons are hosted. For more details, visit EquipCampusMinistries.org. Equip Campus Ministries exists to equip college students to humbly proclaim, explain, and defend the gospel of Jesus Christ, so that, in all things, all people might find joy in displaying the greatness of God's glory.